Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by the Chuckler Podcast Network. Other Chuckler podcasts include All About Me, hosted by Instagram micro-influencers Denver Rodeo and Ashley Lashley Minton. Selfies, Belfies, and what they had for breakfast. Who are we kidding? Nobody eats anymore. Am I right? And Sibilance with Sarah Vowell. This week, Sarah speculates on asparagus, semaphore signals, and sciatica. Also, new music from Semisonic, Sisters of Mercy, and Stereophics. So anyway, you recorded the episode without using the actual mics. Well, with using I mean, a different mic. Eight of 10 sessions of recording. Not as much as it, maybe if I turn I it up here. I wonder if the podcast has is. reached a point where it might be time for a professional audio engineer to How record the podcast. You. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> you got a lot on your hands. You got plenty of other things to do. I mean, if this is a burdensome. It happened once, and it happened specifically because the Parent Trap episode had its own issues, and right. in trying to solve those, I had You created changed. another. I, yes. Okay, I got it. Why don't you give us an introduction, Chris? Welcome to Full Cast and Crew, a podcast that springs from the fertile soil where the mountains of cinematic culture meet the fields of our co-hosts' minds. Each week, we take a film and, using the Full Cast and Crew section of its IMDb page as a guide, trek along its ley lines, stopping along the way to enjoy the coincidences, quirks, secrets, and surprises that signpost our journey toward the truth. Wow. That might be your best one yet. Yeah, that's I'm better than the cave paintings. I mean, you know, it's not a question of better. It's a question of each one has its own thing. Yes. Which I appreciate. Well, good. I'm glad you do. I hope the audience does. Well, that's a good segue, Chris, because speaking of the audience. Yes. Well, I'm Chris. Oh, right. Introductions. Yeah, yes. see, it's, it's a learning process. It's a learning process. You are Chris. I'm I am Jason. Chris. Yes. And we are your co-hosts. Of Full Cast and Crew. Co-hosts. It has been erroneously suggested that I am the singular host. by your relative. Yes, yes. We by, won't mention my her, sister. We won't mention her by name, but your sister yes. left a comment on the Facebook page saying the host. Yeah. Anyway, we do have some comments and some feedback from our listeners. I'm so glad. As ever, we'd always love to hear from you if you're listening to the podcast. You can email the podcast at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on all our various social media accounts simply at fullcastandcrew. This is about our Stan Lee bonus pod, Excelsior. Excelsior. About the passing of Marvel Comics legend Stan Lee. Yes. Which got a very good response, I think, because of your honest and heartfelt experiences and shares about both Marvel and about your experiences in the comic book industry. I personally was fascinated by that. I'm so glad. So thank you for sharing that. I don't feel much, but I was surprised at just how it kind of rocked my world. It's okay to feel, Chris. Yes. Okay. Feels are a big thing for the kids today. It's a journey. It's okay to feel the feels. Anyway, Brad Lofgren was feeling the feels. He wrote, loved the episode. Great to hear your passion on a subject near and dear to you. And I want that PDF of Behemoth. Uh, Brad, I will send it to you. Is Brad a friend of yours? Brad is somebody I went to college with, yes. Oh, okay. So I thought it was a cold email. I thought it was our first cold email to the pod. Well, I think we've had not cold emails, but... uh, Comments from people that are, we have. You're right. We that, have. Uh, mostly okay. hostile. But all right. So anyway, <laughs> this is on our Bohemian Rhapsody episode. 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 Yes. Um, I'm rattled As because of a the continued success of that episode. It's by far, in a way, the most popular episode of our podcast, and it continues to literally get hundreds of downloads per day. Yeah. There's a thread, and there have to be over a hundred people commenting on the thread and every single one of those hundred people plus Chris has seen Bohemian Rhapsody two times, three times, four times. See, people saying I've seen it five times is not uncommon on this thread. Yeah. I think this tells you this movie is going to be a phenomenon for quite some time. And I predict come Oscar season, the Academy is going to reward that very uncommon and unique success yeah. in this day and age. I actually thought that A Star is Born was going to keep the zeitgeist because of Lady Gaga, because of Bradley Cooper, who's also just such a big star. And I guess I didn't realize just how many people loved it's Queen touched as the well. viewers. It has really touched them. And so that, that's, that's an accomplishment. However, 
Laszlo Horvath left us a comment. It's on the podcast page, which is on Libsyn. Yes. And then there's a Facebook comments plugin. I'm not sure where the Facebook comments go. I don't ever see them on the Facebook page. So you will recall that in our Bohemian Rhapsody podcast, we speak about the fact that the vocals in the movie were a combination of Rami Malek, a Canadian singer named Mark Martel, who's a Freddie Mercury soundalike or or impersonator, I'm not sure, but his vocals and Freddie's vocals. And we we have a long section where we discuss how interesting it is that that's how they did the vocals in the movie. Well, Laszlo Horvath did not get the message or listen to the podcast, (laughs) but did feel that it was appropriate for him to chime in with the following snarky rejoinder. I quote, if you guys did your homework, you would realize that French Canadian Mark Martel did the majority of the vocal tracks in this movie. Without him, this movie does not really happen. You are talking about the wrong things in reference to F's to this movie, YouTube, Mark Martell. So listen, Laszlo, fuck off, first of all, okay? (laughs) Coming in hot. How about you do your homework before you take pen to paper and go onto the internet and leave us some snarky comment accusing us of not doing our job when, in fact, job done, okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't understand where all this French-Canadian ire is coming from. Put on some Celine Dion, eat some poutine, and back the hell up. Okay, Laszlo? And by the way, Laszlo was shamed by a couple of people. Oh, good. Um, Good. The full casting crew crew. Yeah. Don't edit that expletive out. Okay. Is that like, can can he sue us or something if I say fuck you? Probably. No, I don't think Uh, so. You know what? This is a great way to find out. (laughs) Um, Okay, (laughs) final uh, comment. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I have two more. You mentioned A Star is Born. Yes. Uh, We do have a comment from Lois. She says, no matter what you say, I will love this version of A Star is Born. I love the 1976 vision of Barbara Streisand. I still listen to her music from the soundtrack. I love Chris Christopherson, but not his music in A Star is Born. I see. So... um Okay. Yeah. You know what, Lois? You, I'm just saying, you no matter what there. you say, I think she's directing that towards you. Probably, Brad, because you were sort of the more, you were less impressed by the movie than yes, I was. Though it sounds to me like she also might not have actually listened and been referring simply to somebody reviewing A Star the, is Born 1976. Perhaps. And the final comment comes from Richard in Providence. He has a question for the hosts. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay. The question is, I would like to know, which movies or subgenre of movies each of the hosts are most embarrassed to love watching? Well, I know you're embarrassed by your tentacle porn obsession, so I don't know I'm if that- I'm not embarrassed about that at all. Oh, okay. No, my, uh, my interest in shokushu erotica is well-documented. Okay. It's I hard mean, in a way. I mean, I think both of us are, if we like something, we're unembarrassed by liking it. So I think things that, that tend to be sort of low-budget, exploitative, uh, high-concept- would probably be the closest to that. I gave this some thought because I was privy to the question prior to you. So I've been thinking about it. And like you, I thought, I mean, if I embrace a bad movie, I embrace it, I fly the flag high, I go out onto the street and I seek confrontation. However, there is one movie... I'm in, I am embarrassed to say, so I think this does answer that. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm seeing, I'm, do I, I was am I flushing? I see you flushing a little bit. I am bit. flushing. Yeah. I just felt that on my cheek. So I am actually embarrassed to admit this. Love Actually. The Hugh Grant Christmas movie, uh, whatever it is, it's a amalgam of intra, inter or unrelated Christmas fable stories, which features a who's who of fantastic English actors. Now, a lot of people love love, actually. You're no, I know. not alone. I'm embarrassed that I don't appreciate it unironically. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, I'm embarrassed that I don't appreciate it ironically. Right. I'm embarrassed that I watch it in full absorptive power of its manipulative effect on my mind and heart as I watch it. Yeah. That's about the only thing I could I could say that I'm I'm embarrassed to admit being a fan of. Richard uh, did ask specifically about a genre or a subgenre or a subgenre, but I think um, Richard Curtis himself. I haven't seen any of his uh, any of his work, but I do know that people talk about him almost as if he is his own subgenre. Didn't he do? Uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah. Notting Hill, Hill. Not a fantastic movie. First Bridget Jones Diary is a very funny movie. My daughter's school, my daughter's in second grade, and they publish a newspaper uh, once, once or twice a semester. They did a poll on Halloween where the kids walk around with little notebooks and they ask their fellow students, 
uh, various poll oh. questions. And the, this poll question was, what's your favorite <laughs> Halloween movie? And among the options, disconcertingly, were such adorable <laughs> kids' Halloween films as The Shining, It, and Nightmare on Elm Street. The Shining came in second. <laughs> what, what did win? <laughs> what won was Other. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, because they didn't include Texas Chainsaw Massacre on there. I, mean, I don't know what the hell they're And watching. that's why that really appeals to kids. I wish that I was the kind of parent that would show my second grader The Shining. I'm I'm not. I would I'm too protective of her. I mean, when I watch The Shining, my soul is harmed in fundamental disturbing ways. And I'm aware that I only have so many viewings of that film over my lifetime. So I need to preserve them and meet them out. To be fair, the, the, the quiz went from second to sixth grade. But even a sixth grader should not be watching The Shining I, or Nightmare on Elm Street or certainly It, which is a horrifying movie. I loved the most recent adaptation of Stephen King's It. Okay, Chris, today we're here to talk about Monkey Shines. Monkey Shines is a 1988 film by George A. Romero the legendary director of the 1968 horror classic Night of the Living Dead, 1978's iconic Zombies at the Mall flick Dawn of the Dead, which incidentally was Romero's first film working with legendary special effects man Tom Savini, who also did the effects for Monkey Shines, and a personal favorite of mine, 1982's Creepshow. Oh, that means Chris hasn't seen Creepshow. Hi, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, because as you can hear, my co-host never lets me get a word in edgewise. I'm going to record some things post facto, a term I'm sure I'm not using correctly. Uh, the first is that, yes, I've seen Creepshow. Romero also sported Hollywood's second most iconic pair of eyeglasses. Google it. <laughs> and I'll post the first most iconic pair of eyeglasses on our Instagram page, which is at Full Cast and Crew. Monkey Shines, like most of Romero's films, is set in Pittsburgh and features Chicago PD star Jay Jason Begay, Begay, playing Alan Mann. Beggy. Beggy. I, no, I, I, I researched. I researched. <laughs> I saw right. that same clip, but then I watched another one and it said Begay. I, see, I saw two. It's got to be Begay. Begay. It can't be sure. Beggy. Okay. You know what? I'm just saying. Sure. Don't see Let's it. go with Beggy. We're going with Beggy. Yeah. Jason Beggy, playing Alan Mann. Do you see what they did there with the name? Alan Mann. Man versus Oh, monkey. man versus nature. Chris didn't get it. Okay. No, I did. Alan Mann, a former athlete paralyzed from the neck down during a creatively staged jogging accident. Mm. During his lengthy rehab, Mann's girlfriend played with some impressive dimensionality by Janine Turner, who two years later would begin starring in Northern Exposure, leaves him for Mann's own oleaginous and possibly malpractical surgeon, played by Stanley Tucci with slightly more hair than you're used to. I may have made up the word malpractical. Man's best friend in this case, Chris, is not a dog, but instead druggy lab rat Jeffrey Fisher, played by Mad About You's John Pankow. And to help with Alan's rehab, he supplies an animal trainer with a laboratory monkey he's been experimenting on. The monkey, Ella, becomes a loving and trusted helper to Alan Mann before some sort of monkey-manned mind meld resulting from Fisher's legal experiments begins taking place, and the monkey eventually becomes an agent of Mann's violent homicidal impulses. Man becomes animal, becomes man, becomes animal, Chris. A brilliantly twisted ending wraps things up neatly, and Bob's your uncle at Finney. Monkey Shines is currently at 53% rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, and 40% of the audience wants to see it, which begs the question, Chris, what's wrong with everyone? They don't appreciate a good thing when it's given to them. It's not, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Well, <laughs> it is not a perfect film. You know what it is? It's the kind of movie that's fun to watch with a group of people. Yeah. Right? Back when people used to do that. Yeah. Um, Back when people had friends, but now we're living in an now age. Now we live in an alienated time. I thought one of the best comments about uh, Monkey Shines came from the late, great Roger Ebert, who said, somewhere in the one hour, 53 minute running time is a 90 minute masterpiece waiting to emerge. This was Romero's first studio film. He shot reams and reams and reams of footage. One by one anecdote, over 50% of the footage was left on the cutting room floor. They somehow made it much longer than it really needed to be, both for the type of genre picture it is and for the story that's unfolded. However, it has a certain charm of the era it has and a- some inventiveness, which we can discuss. Not only did it go on too long for the story that was found in it, but the I think the choices of what to leave on the cutting room floor, they left some- uh, Exposition? Yeah, <laughs> some, like, some big connective tissue. Well, I mean, let's be fair. In a movie where the way you screw with the monkey medically is scraping frozen tissue off a frozen brain and injecting it into the monkey, I don't think we're really going to get a lot of detailed- 
dot connecting. Those are some great dots. But the one where somebody's like, oh my God, I feel like I'm seeing through a monkey's eyes. Yeah. That is all that I kind of needed because it jumped straight into, well, for the listeners who might not remember, the reason we watched this uh, <laughs> It was going to be Widows. Turns out didn't yeah. have a screener. While I was listening to- Not that we would of, share that screener with each other in violation of PGA rules. Well, I mean, you would have watched your screener. I would have gone to the movies to see it. I did exactly. not mean to imply yes. Yes. Uh, otherwise. I was listening to the episode that went up today, and it happened to get to the part of Monkey Shines. And I thought, like- Wait, we talk about it in Buster Scruggs? Yeah. Do we? Jeez. Stephen Root. Oh, Stephen Root. You must have brought it up. You must have said Stephen Root was in Monkey Shines, which I've I always think, wanted right, to see. I think we were see. looking at the MD, we were doing exactly what we're supposed oh, to do. Oh, okay. Now I remember. The great Stephen Root, uh, who was great he's gr- in he's this. He's great in this. I can't think of another actor who so convincingly can be either warmly, lovingly comedic or completely sinister. Yeah. And he can do both. And he can overlap the two. He can. Like there's a certain yes. kind of smile and goofiness yes. uh, to both this character and, and particularly the character in Ballad of Buster Scruggs that masks a threateningness, but it well, does not feel. Yes, but the real reason we watched it was because we couldn't watch Widows. Well, I was. So, so that's how I we sort of came you to this. the lily, but. That's how we came to it. But part of it, I've always wanted to see this movie because the pitch being. It's a, a paraplegic great- with the helper monkey and the helper monkey and he have yes. mind meld and go crazy. I am You're all in. so into it. Well, the mind meld, as you mentioned, not connecting the dots, uh, I asked you earlier today, if you go to the Rotten Tomatoes page for this movie, there's a very there's a great image of Jason Beggy <laughs> lying in sort of an altered states-like hospital bed situation with all kinds of wires and electrodes coming out of his brain. And I emailed Chris, and I said, is this even in the movie? Because I don't remember that shot, but I mean, I could have dropped out of paying attention for 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes. And you were like, yep, not in the movie. But obviously there was some scenes shot where I believe some, you know, brain to brain transfer was probably Something part of the storyline. Like yeah. I was in right away at the top. I thought the graphics and the titles were amazing to this day. I thought they looked fantastic and the music was great. The very first in. thing you see is the disclaimer about how no actual monkeys were harmed <laughs> before anything else. And I was like, oh my. Wow. What, is, what am I, I about like, to see? Yeah, what am I about to Fair see? Fair enough. After you watch it, I mean, almost the most amazing thing about the movie uh, is whoever trained the monkey or monkeys that performed to a pretty large degree, much more convincingly and better than many of the human <laughs> actors. Not Not to be too mean about it, but I mean, some of the shots- where this monkey is like, literally, it'd be hard for me to remember the blocking. Like, yeah. enter the room, look up, open a cabinet, take something out, and run out of the frame. Like, I mean, maybe this is really easy to train monkeys to do. I don't know anything about monkey training. Yeah. I was confused in the title sequence. I'm watching, I'm watching. I love, there's this kind of like two-dimensional cutout title thing going on. And then they run through the cast members. And I'm like, oh, mm, okay. And then it said, introducing Boo as Ella. At first, I didn't connect the dots, and I thought, oh, is this like one of those like 70s, 80s things where there's like a one-named actor? Right. Uh, but no, Boo is the, is it a capuchin? capuchin? Is it a capuchin monkey? Yeah. As Ella. Did Boo go on to- I was actually going to point out that, uh, funny enough, this was Boo, you know- Boo's who knows, one and only, or? Again, who knows with Hollywood, uh, one great performance, and yet, mm. you know, was not able to capitalize on it. It's not like um, the monkey from uh, the Hangover movies. Remember yeah. that monkey? Well, we worked with that monkey. Really? We worked with that monkey on an episode of a series called World's Dumbest. Yeah, oh, it must have been after, and, I, uh, after I left. Mike Trainer, who's a comedian and writer, either Mike flew out to LA to coordinate this complicated shoot with uh, the monkey, who, man, talk about a diva. Yeah. This, I'm trying to find the name of this monkey right now, quickly. The monkey is named Crystal the Monkey. The monkey was really nasty. But funny. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, you that's my only experience. Geniuses. And again, I was here in New York. Mike was out there in LA. <laughs> so I wasn't really. Yeah, you think it was nasty to you. But, you he know. He was the one probably picking just the feces even, up off the off Even the floor. from a distance, I thought, my God, how hard is it to get these, these monkeys to do this stuff? So I, I was very impressed right, right off the bat with however the heck, whoever the heck trained uh, Boo. Uh, Boo, yeah. I, I think this is in a title card, that capuchin monkeys were the ones being picked to be trained as helper monkeys. Uh, they must ha- be a little bit easier to train. Oh, I don't even know that's a real thing. Look, I mean, not in the 2018 sense where like say- you have a support <laughs> llama, but I mean, is it a real thing? 
did I imagine that or did helper monkeys are a real thing? I didn't imagine it. The title card at the beginning of the movie reads, the helping hands program at Boston University trains capuchin monkeys to assist the disabled. The monkeys in this film were trained using many of the basic techniques pioneered by the program. Although some sequences may appear traumatic, no monkey was harmed in any way. Michael Stewart's career, the guy who wrote Monkey Shines, apparently all of his novels, he would find some interesting scientific fact and sort of blow it up and build like, a sort of- people have monkey helpers. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, the intro sequence, which reminded me a little bit of Pumpkinhead, in which we're sort of in a classical filmic narrative, kind of yeah. beautiful music and a happy man with his beautiful girlfriend, and he's going for a run- and he puts weights for some reason on every appendage. Because he's intent. You know, he is an athlete. Yes. I guess this is meant to be the the irony upon ironies of him being stuck in the Do wheelchair. Because he puts on ankle weights, he puts on wrist weights, and then he fills a backpack with bricks. Yeah. Do you think that that's sort of foreshadowing like man trying to be more animal-like, like trying to be strong in a way that man can't relative to the strength of animals? Like, you know, they'd say like an ant has the strength of 10,000 men. He's an athlete. I don't know. Athletes yeah. do all sorts of stupid stuff. I, I love like the the Romero visual touch in terms of the efficiency of the storytelling in the beginning parts of these kind of sequences. Like that pan over the photographs on the bedside or on the refrigerator, whatever it was, where you're basically told the story of his athletic background and his romance and sort of bringing you up to the present day when he's about to return home after what we're led to believe is a rehab lengthy enough after his accident to have someone applied the worst fake beard in movie history. Oh, Alan, you're home. start of his new life. Jason Beggy, again, we are admittedly and intentionally pronouncing the name wrong. <laughs> We're not intentionally saying it wrong. We just don't have reliable info. Jason Beggy um, goes out for a run, goes for a jog, and uh, what's he doing? He's admiring nature. Oh no, he something no, distracts him. I, what is it? A, a dog. dog. A dog, right. That I guess had not been properly secured or the gate was left open. No, the or, dog was just in his own yard. It looked like the dog comes past the gate. Oh, now, I thought knows, the dog just ran up to the fence and barked at him. I don't think so. And he was just too like, Ugh. sorry, too, uh, too. He's just like, to what? Too in his own jogging world. You know, he the way got, joggers he are he in their own world. He got startled. He got scared. Yeah. Well, he wasn't looking where he was going and he got hit by a truck. And I liked, I thought, I laughed. The well, shot. Your lack of sympathy for the jogger getting hit by a truck. Like, yeah, he got started. Well, I know like, what kind of movie we're watching here. I mean, I know that this is all setting in motion the plot. Uh, yeah. What I liked was the, I mean, sure, we could shoot a jogger getting hit by a truck the conventional way. We could we could fill a man's clothes with like lima beans and yeah. and quickly cut away from it as it like gets thrown 10 feet in front of a truck. Or what I thought George Romero did a brilliant job with, I loved how when he gets hit, the backpack flies into the air and he's, he's filled the backpack with bricks to make the jog more joggish, difficult. difficult. And the backpacks in slow motion fly through the air and crash upon the ground. And that's how we're, that's the, that's the metaphor, Chris, for the broken spirit, the broken body of man. Yeah, the broken body. Yeah. Man. I was going to say, it's not the spirit because his spirit no, is okay. the spirit is feisty at first. Yeah. Then we're set in motion. I thought Janine Turner was quite good. She's in the thankless girlfriend part at the beginning of the movie. And you think she's going to be on this guy's side. But that one great initial scene with her and Tucci uh, intimates that something has occurred during the rehab process. How you holding up? Good. I'm good. Good. I better go freshen up. I will be here any minute. One thing that I really appreciate about the movie, and especially about the beginning, is how quickly it gets into it. And then they quickly destroy his body. They quickly have the girlfriend from the get-go. The first time you see her, she's literally packing her things at the, like, welcome home party. <laughs> she's on her way out. I got the impression that he was picking her up then. Oh, you, you don't think anything had her. happened already? Yes, he's lecherously kind of, like, coming on to her. However, her head turns and facial expressions and then panicked phone call to the John Pankow character lead me to believe that while he was in an excruciating months-long paraplegic right. rehab- That she had been- She uh, was knocking boots with the tooch. 
Then John Pankow from Mad About You. I actually saw Jam- John Pankow a couple weeks ago. Really? In Where? the play The True at the New Group. And it starred Edie Falco. Mm-hmm. And it also had Michael McKeon and Peter Scolari. So it had some great oh, wow. New York stage Talk actors. Talk about like- 70s, 80s TV film mashup. Was Pankow good? John Pankow was awesome in The True. He was also awesome in this. He's been awesome in a lot of things. Stage, screen, TV. And one of those guys, totally dissimilar to Lance Henriksen, who we discussed, but similarly, not he's not a heartthrob. He's not mm-hmm. a handsome leading man, but he reliably no can, can deliver. Well, he would say that about himself, I'm sure. Yeah, but every, no, it's one thing to say. You think, you think he, he thinks of himself like it? a leading man? Yeah, nobody likes to hear that. Well, you know what? Sometimes you got to hear the truth about yourself, <laughs> you know? When? That's true. When hopefully never uh, hopefully as late in thing. life as possible. Fullcast and Crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involve Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass for stealing my twisted tees. Another interesting thing, by the way, George Romero predicted Alexa. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so- Well, first of all, I think it was Michael Stewart who wrote the novel upon which well, the film was based. I give the director all the credit. I don't. I didn't read the novel. Did you do that much preparation? Th- th- not oh, that, that not quite that much. <laughs> Because I was I reading a little bit about Michael really Stewart, yeah. Uh, I, no, because no. I did read a review that said, like, as great a movie as you could make from a middling novel. Or oh, something. okay. <laughs> well, like you know Alexa, the device from Amazon that you have in your yeah, home yeah. and you speak to it? I, mean, I don't, because I'm afraid of being spied upon. I understand. Um, and also, birds aren't real, but we can get to that later. <laughs> um, Jason Jason Beggy just has the 1988 version of Alexa, oh, where he's like, yeah. number seven, and the blind goes up on Windows 7. Number 11, and the, he makes a phone call. Uh, he's got a voice-activated smart home in 1988. I did look up, you know, Helper monkeys are a real thing. They are. They are. So what about Joyce Van Patten as mother? Well, uh, one of the joys of this movie was I thought they found a lot of interesting yes. things. One, despite it being played by Stanley Tucci, uh, who's jacked, uh, <laughs> yes. at first I was like, okay, maybe- you know, Hard to be that fine. jacked in 88 too, I think. No, you, you gotta, know, yeah. You got to really, like, you can't just take the needle. You got to do the work. Uh, but both he at first- was not sympathetic per se, but I thought there was there was a kind of realism, like when he yes. told the mother to like go. I can't go now, not now. What if Alan? Not if he tries this again. Well, you're not going to prevent it by being here. Look what happened today. Look, I know it might be difficult for you to understand, but I think you might actually be aggravating the situation. Aggravating? Go home, Dorothy. Go back to Illinois. Go back to your business. You make it easier on yourself and on Alan. There was something about it that he did not seem like overly villainous to begin with. And it's not until later is it implied that the operation was botched. And even then it's the the other doctors like, I don't know, maybe he did fine. You yeah. know, I liked that it didn't take that, that kind of easy route. And, and that actually made that character a little bit deeper. And for what we said about Janine Turner's character, the fact that she was on the way out the door, whether she was having a fair with him already or not. Like that seemed like yes. a real motivated thing that, yes. that you understand why somebody could be scared off like that. And so too, and I'm getting to the mother particularly, her breakdown. Yes. Do you have any idea how much you made me cry? Do you have any idea how worthless you made me feel? How alone? Whoever asked you to give up anything, you don't give a shit about me or anybody else. Whether she's a good mom or a bad mom, the Wikipedia page uh, on the movie Monkey Shines, that Wikipedia editor is really kind of a judgmental prick about everybody. <laughs> well. Just allow for, you know, the humans are flawed. You know, everybody- Well, Chris, makes she does mistakes. beat the shit out of her paraplegic son and then take a bubble bath afterwards. One. She hit him once. Wow. Joyce Van Patten is fantastic She's in so this great. and is so scary and so, so creepy. Um, but not just creepy. Like I thought sympathetic at first and, yeah. I, and my, I, my heart broke for her with how <laughs> in the beginning she was like, I don't know how to handle this. So oh, I'm no. going to try being I, I, No, I, I saw her coming a mile away as the overbearing mother, but that <sighs> might be my own, my, my own issues. Yeah. Um, look, 
in the movies, Chris, when you be, when you're rendered a paraplegic, I'm sorry, but it's your job to come home and tell your hot girlfriend that she should leave you. That's what you're supposed to do in the movies. Well, you know, you're she, supposed to say she didn't give him a chance. You're supposed to act like a dick so she leaves you, even though you're heartbroken. That's what you do in the movies. I know. Now in this movie, that's why this is such a bold sort of film. But he is kind of he's kind of sad and sappy and pathetic. Oh, Comes really? home all mopey and shit. I mean, there's a big party for you and like your whole family, your coat, your high school, your college coach is here. And like all you're doing is moving around and moping around. I mean, you know, you, it, it's up to, you've got to show a little something wow. yourself. I, yeah, yeah, I, I disagree. It's not the 100%. day after the accident. Yeah, it's, it's his months. first day home. Sure. But it's been months. And he does seem to try. He seems genuinely just uncomfortable. And he's glad when somebody's like, hey, you're going to offer me a drink. He's excited. But then the nurse takes it and shoves the uh, sippy cup in his throat instead of being more gentle with him. I, I actually know I had the exact opposite reaction because then you cut to him pretty soon after you see him trying to learn how to turn the pages in a book uh, with, his with his wand and stuff like that. I actually thought that he had a good uh, outlook from the beginning. Oh, look, I'm just saying I understood why she was putting her hair dryer and curling iron in the bag and getting ready to leave. That's all. Well, because she never also never visited him in the hospital. Well, she says she, she says <laughs> I should have visited you more. Yeah, she said I should have visited you a little more. She it, it wasn't yeah, that she didn't she, say a little more. <laughs> This whole movie okay. is about the the his nascent bitterness and yes. stuff that develops underneath it. I actually thought that he came out pretty chipper, and then the world starts kicking him in the shins. Having wow. that nurse who's a the nurse <laughs> who's a real pain, his mother. She like I said, fantastic. even though I was much more sympathetic to her than you were, like I could also see how that might be a bit much. His girlfriend really, really projecting. does not want to have anything to do with him. Yeah, we haven't talked about the subplot about Jeffrey, yes. played by Jeff, Jeff John Pan- John Pankow, uh, the drug-addled. Yes. Um, Scientist. Mad scientist. University I scientist. I call him a mad scientist. Yeah, I don't know what I mean, he's, he's trying to do. I mean, he's untenured. He's trying to increase the intelligence of monkeys through so injecting he, them with scra- brain scrapings. Yes. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Which to, is, to what end? Why do you need to ask? You know, it's like, did they stop to ask if they should clone dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? No. Yeah. And that it's just cool worked to out do fine, it. I'm it's assuming, cool to do right? it, yeah. And it was a human brain that he was injecting them with. Yeah, right? he got it from somebody who had died on the thing. and so He wasn't supposed to have. Yeah, friends slipped him. Uh, and this introduces the Stephen Root character who plays the administrator, guess, administrator. of the, uh, yes. both the administrator and I guess the scientist himself. Which again, speaking the- to the kind of somewhat impressive complexity of the movie, or at least the unexpectedness of the movie, you don't have like the well-meaning administrator. You have sort of a evil administrator in a way who's out to get the John Panko character or to catch him doing what he suspects, which is fucking around in the lab and doing shit you shouldn't be doing. Well, here's this is an interesting thing that I thought of because the detail that he gives is that he, they all run on grant money and that this guy wants wants uh, John Pankow's character to Do some shit produce. that brings in the money. Basically, that'll bring yeah. in some money. I've seen you on three different talk shows defending the slaughter of animals for research. Your knife work has the anti-vivisectionist ready to firebomb the college. That's what's making the people who write the checks nervous. It's not because of anything I'm doing. Our approaches are quite different, that's true. Unfortunately for you, I happen to be the head of this department. Why don't you just fire me then, huh? I don't want to fire you, Jeffrey. I just want to get you to produce. There are little points in here, like you have a little, you have something about the animal testing uh, and the protesters coming to it. You have the fact that they're working in academia. Like you said, not quite sure what we're doing, but we're hoping to do something yeah. that will help somebody. And so therefore we're, we are hoping for funding from these outside uh, funders. Like all of that, just touching on the, um, I guess you would call it the academic industrial complex. I thought- Who doesn't love that in a movie, guys? <laughs> No, but I, it gave Stephen Root's character some- So you um, thought the publisher act- parish element was handled particularly deftly yes. in Monkey Yes, and I Shines. thought it gave, it gave Stephen Root's <laughs> character more of a sure. a motivation besides just disliking the, his friggin' speed freak underling. Sure. Fair enough. Well, 
Uh, Melanie Parker, played by Kate McNeil, comes into the picture because she's the animal trainer, the service animal trainer, right. I she, guess. She trains helper monkeys. She trains helper monkeys. On her farm. She comes in and has some immediate sparky chemistry with Jason Beggy. Well, he got a lot of attention at the time for doing a particularly good job in this movie, apparently. <laughs> I will say that. Because some reviewers noted, geez, the guy's got to act the whole movie with just his face. Yeah. I went back. I think that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I, I mean, he's not good. Let me just say that. <laughs> is that is that too fine of a point? Yeah. I, I went back and forth almost minute by minute being like, you're like, he's doing a great terrible. job. He's, he's terrible. No, no, this guy's great. Like he's got so little. Now, one other, another part where this movie lost me when Melanie comes into the picture and she's got a little spark with Jason Beggy. Um, and then they're talking about food because the nurse won't allow him to drink anything out of a out of a glass. He's got to drink out of like a BPA free sippy cup, and he can't eat spicy foods. And and Melanie, the animal trainer character, says, "What would you really like? What's your all time favorite? All time favorite? Pasta, linguine with clam sauce, and a mega dose of garlic. Well, maybe I'll make it for you sometime. Promise? Mm, that's not called a promise." If I get the chance, I'll make it. Linguini with clam sauce. Chris, if that's your favorite food, I'm sorry, but you're a monster. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes that. What do you mean nobody likes it's a, that? It's disgusting. I thought you were going to say like, that's eh, a little bit on it. You know, dream a little. Think of a turducken. Ugh. I don't get why people eat linguine with clam sauce. Yeah. Well, clams. What? Why do people eat clams? They're gross. They're, good. No, they're, they're gelatinous. Good. They're mucus-like. They're rubbery. They grow yeah, in the sand. They're so just, what? That's all great. Like of all the things you can eat, spaghetti strikes me as probably. Well, you he's also an athlete. Spoon. He was a marathoner. You know, probably. Oh, so the marathoner's carbo load. Anyway, linguine with clam sauce. That's it, when it, I was done you know, with him. It's, it's really weird. The sort of details that'll a, throw you. No, I think that's a foreshadowing you. in the movie. I think that's telling you this is a bad guy. This guy, <laughs> this guy is going to be bad guy. I was moved by the first touching scenes with Ella the monkey and oh, yeah. and and Alan Mann. When the monkey's hugging him, yeah. God, that was that was really beautifully done. Um, shout out to Boo the monkey. Yeah, great job. Shout out to Boo the monkey. And uh, here's a fun fact: Did you know that the voice was not was not natural monkey voice? It was provided by Franklin Wendell Welker, who was the voice of Fred on Scooby Doo from 1969. Up until the present, I guess. But he got promoted to actually also be the voice of Scooby at two th in two thousand two. Wow, that's a big th that's a big promotion. Yeah, he actually he also he does the monkey noises. He, Frank uh, Franklin Walker all, uh, seemed to do a lot of uh, animal sounds. First of all, I didn't notice any monkey sounds that required a voiceover artist to perform them. But that's testament. That's to testament how good to his he genius. Is. He was also the voice of Megatron on the Transformers. This is another funny Hollywood detail to me. So people love Transformers. Yeah, I okay. don't know why. Um, but so to be the voice of Megatron in the Transformers TV series is a pretty fucking big deal yeah. if, you're, if you're a voice actor. Uh, what, more recently they make Transformers movies. Yeah. Do they use the unknown guy who's been providing the voice of Megatron reliably for years on TV? Oh, no, no, no. They replace him with a name actor. They gave it to Hugo Weaving. I mean, Hugo Weaving is good. Hugo Weaving is great. Yeah. But I mean, does that, does the voice of Hugo Weaving make the character of Megatron that much great? I don't, I've never seen, I don't know what Megatron, I don't know what that is. I don't know what the Transformer, I guess Transformers is like robots into cars, right? That's Transformers? <laughs> it's robots in disguise. You got the oh, tune right. Right, okay. Did you know Orson Welles' last credit is the animated Transformers film? Actually, around the same time Seriously? as Monkey Shines. Yeah. As a voice? He was a voice, of, voice a, of, of a dying older- uh, Transformer. Dying older Transformer that Optimus Prime then like takes over from. Uh, Don't make me angry. I can't control it, <laughs> screams Alan Mann in this film. Sort of a Hulk-like thing begins to happen to him where his rage, his rage spiral. And then the monkey, through, again, a lack of exposition, somehow the monkey either intuits- the people with whom Alan Mann is having a conflict and then seeks to eliminate them? Or is the monkey eliminating people in order to have Alan Mann all to herself to complete the assimilation and then monkey dominance? That's, he's the, not thing like that, sending that's the thing that bothered me a little bit, the exposition element, because it also would have pushed you in a direction to understand, like, what is the, the nature of the exchange? Even in a genre picture, 
you know, that kind of verisimilitude is what gives the story some meaning. And to me, all of the the fantastic, yeah, let's not oversell <laughs> let's it. Let's not use that <laughs> word. <laughs> all of the very interesting uh, quirks of the characters and the relationships yeah. that, they, that they had. I thought there was so much to the metaphor in the story here that a little bit more of that detail, I think, would have just made it mean a little bit more. But that... That bird scene, so the nurse has an annoying bird. The annoying nurse has an annoying bird. And Ella, uh, after the nurse who's becoming increasingly frustrated with Alan Mann and uh, treating him rudely, I think it's the first kill that Ella has is the bird. Yeah. Right? You're right. And, um, and there's a whole shot where the monkey hops up, opens the bird cage, reaches in. I mean, it's like, how do they, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm just amazed at how they train the monkey to do this. And then the limpness of the bird in her slipper where he leaves it, which is a nice malevolent touch. Again, fantastic. So he kills the bird, puts it in her shoe. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I don't care what they said in that disclaimer, a bird clearly was harmed in the making of this movie because that, my friend, was a dead bird body. Hey, the disclaimer said all they talked about monkeys. <laughs> you can't fake the limpness of a dead bird, a freshly dead, like that was a, that was a, a fluid dead bird carcass. Um, I thought when Ella started going a little crazy and John Pankow comes into the house and Ella has like a, what is that? Like a garlic chopper or something in the kitchen and she's smashing it down. That was a really scary yes. scene. I was like, that was a tense scene filled with like building sort of uh, threatened violence. Yeah. The sort of dishonesty of, or a better way to put it, you know, Jeffrey is, Alan's friend and wants to do something nice to his friend that also, you know, he's would also, also totally sucking his friend by but that's what I mean. psychotic monkeys into his life. Which, <laughs> but look, hey, for a while it works out great. But see, that's the stuff you're talking about before. That's the good, like when you have stuff like that, you're doing something a little off the beaten path. And if you can marshal that together, then you make a 90 minute pretty cool movie totally, where no one's yeah. all good and no one's all bad. And it's actually about something. Yes. And instead, unfortunately, it ran a little bit off the rails. It did run a little bit off the rails, but I'll tell you. So he they, he has a second surgery and they, he has like a dream sequence where like the monkey, like the alien yes. from Aliens, yes. bursts out of his Fantastic. Back. That scene was fantastic. My other favorite scene around the same time of the movie where was when John Pankow's character comes back to the house and is trying to rescue Alan Mann, but has been injected <laughs> with his own syringe filled with some form of narcotic. She got me. You know me and needles, huh? I put enough in there to bring down King Kong. <laughs> Jeff, the telephone. Get the phone. Ace. Jeff, untangle the phone. We'll call for help. Ace. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Jeff, the telephone. We'll call the hospital. Don't worry. Hospital. I gotta, I gotta go there. No. There's no time to make a run trip. Jeff, you can't possibly try to unhook this phone, <laughs> goddammit. Time. I gotta go there. Jeff, unhook the fucking phone and just will call for help. <laughs> Jeffrey! <laughs> First of all, there were a bunch of syringes that all looked the same. That was one so of which good. had like human brain shaving. Yes. The other, I guess, and had we have like, no reason to know. And then the monkey, just the shots of the little monkey hands plunging the syringe yeah. into John Pankow. And then the greatest scene ever, Chris. This is why this movie will be classic. No, they could have done everything worse. The very fact that the, if you don't mind if I- Are you talking about the same scene I'm talking about? The with the coat hanger? That, oh, the coat, you can tell the- Okay, I'm talking about the scene where after he inject, after Ella injects John Pankow with the tranquilizer, John Pankow is still trying to save the scenario. And there's a brilliant shot where Ella gets a hold of a coat hanger and uses the coat hanger as a hockey stick to slap shot the syringe that Pankow is reaching for out of his grasp, yeah. thus and getting around it. Just getting away with it. That's why I laughed so oh, hard. What and was I thought, so great is that, that was genius. 
so good. But to me, the thing that this this movie, everything else could have been garbage. This movie so could have been 45 seconds. The ultimate resolution of this film. Oh, the wait, wait, no, no. Let's not talk about that yet. You're talking about what happens to Ella. Yeah. Yeah. We have to go through a okay. couple of other yeah, things. Yeah, sure. Um, talking about verisimilitude. You have an advanced voice command system in your home, which can- <laughs> Raise and lower shades. It can open the make, door. It can open the door. It can make phone calls. One of the voice commands isn't call nine one one. That seems to be a flaw in your system. Number one, when designing a home care system for a paraplegic, it's that's a, just one obvious. Thing. Okay, we will okay. take that comment under advisement. Uh, and problem. Mark two, you know this. We learn from every mistake. And uh, to get to the the scene you're talking about, I almost forgave every single thing that happened in the near two hours prior to the scene where. Alan Mann finally kills Ella. It is so fucking hilariously it's done. Awesome. And it goes on for so long. And it's, <laughs> it's so. Homeboy kills the monkey by grabbing its neck with his teeth. Well, that's all he has. Yeah, I know, I mean, but that's yeah. what I'm saying. This is awesome. He sinks there is his something teeth about into her sinking his teeth into it that is so animalistic that yes. I, I loved. And then he shakes it around. And the, uh, the joke that I wanted to make at the time was uh, because Jason Beggy is a former Scientologist, I wanted to say he grabs that monkey and shakes it like David Miscavige with a sea organ turn or something. Not only does he shake it around, I mean, he shakes this thing for about a minute and a half. And then- and flicks it. spits it out on the and he floor. spits it out and the carcass drops in her little body. And then the blood gets on the tape oh, player where he played so, the music to soothe her. Like I said, I, I thought that was so freaking He was trying savage. to seduce her. Yeah. Well, did you think they were intimating that she was amenable to some romantic love between herself and, and Alan Mann? I mean, he does put on some slow jams. <laughs> And and coaxes her to hug him, and he kisses her. Jason, I was thinking, is this is this where it's going? Come on up here, baby. Come on, please. Come here, Ellen. And the only Talk about a genre or subgenre you're embarrassed to admit. The <laughs> I ain't embarrassed. <laughs> uh, why I thought the mother thing was that the intimacy of taking care of someone yes. and defining yourself by taking care of them and all of this, right, was it a romantic relationship or was it a was it a dominance? Like yeah. it became all it became so all. muddy. Yes. yes. That, that, I think if it were clearer, that's one of those places that I think if it were clearer, I would have liked it less. But to me, it just seemed so murky and strange. Yeah, you know, I'm sure he was in in intimating that, you know, as smart as the monkey was from having eaten all that brain. Yeah. Uh, or having the brain injected into her. Uh, here's what. The, <laughs> Which doesn't like, really work science-wise, by the way. Have you tried it? <laughs> well, pretty sure injecting brain scrapings into I mean, look, the fatty tissue of a muscle if, doesn't really it cause, I mean, A, the brain is dead. Yeah, but they it's frozen. frozen. Yeah, but that, it's, it's it, not. To like keep the nutrients in. It's like you're. Peas, your frozen peas. Yeah, but it's all, no, I think it's more like cryogenics where you think I'm dead, but but someday they'll unfreeze me and fix what's wrong with me and I'll live again. Yeah. The brain is dead. The brain is out of the body. It's not living. It doesn't have electrical signals. Once he takes the brain and plops it down, it doesn't matter that he yeah, froze it. Yeah, if you can it unfreeze wasn't, it's it. It's not attached to anything. But if you can unfreeze there's it. There's no electricity in it. But if you can unfreeze it and have it start working again in the future when they cure whatever, that means that whatever it was must be stored in there. Well, uh, even without the electricity. It's, it's a hardware issue. It's a hardware issue. Okay, fair enough. Full cast and crew is brought to you by... Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today.
Uh, Did you know that Jason Begay was best friends with both John F. Kennedy Jr. and- David Duchovny. David Duchovny. Yeah. And that he's the one who got David Duchovny into acting because yes. Duchovny was going to go be some egghead scientist somewhere. Yeah. And he said, dude. I think whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, like whoa. a literature professor. Literature professor. Instead, he was like, whoa, try this acting thing, man. <laughs> Come on. It's easy. It's easy, dude. Look at me. <laughs> they had me fight a monkey. I'm looking at Jason Begay's career now and I'm sort of like, what? how, why, what? He's supposed to be really good looking. That's one thing, which he's just a guy. I mean, he just looks like your average Irish guy. Eh, I don't know. I mean- and He said like he was a model before he was an yeah, actor. Not that good looking. Wow. Um, I, I'm saying he's not good looking enough to be superlative. He's not like so pretty that you want him to be photographed so you can gaze upon him. He's not like a Brad Pitt. I mean, Pitt. I guess something like that is, is a, Steve a stylistic thing. Like, uh, I'm just saying he's just- a certain look. I don't know. I, I'm interested just from knowing, you know, Scientologist, yes. then uh, Defector. And uh, his career, like you said, he had this, I think he was less than 30 or something, around 30 oh, probably, when he shot less. this. But at a relatively young age, he had this shot, This th which did not, uh, this was a major motion picture, that could have made him a star. It didn't. You know, he sort of well, languished. You got good reviews. You did good work in it, according he, he to did, the industry. Yeah. No, but the fact is, he didn't become the next Tom Cruise or whatever. Well, of course not. I, you know what's great about the scene, both with the fur flying and I think whatever the kill is just before that. Um, oh, it's when Melanie comes back um, and is trying to fight. There's some amazing shots of the monkey fight with Melanie where the monkey is probing her cheek with the, he's trying to stab her with the other syringe yeah. so that she becomes drugged and dies as well. He's like putting it in her cheek. He's putting it in her ear. He's trying to get it in there. And then at one point she's wrestling with the monkey and both in the scene you're talking about where, where Ella dies, where he, where he rips into it with his teeth and shakes her to death, both in that scene and in the scene I'm talking about with Melanie, it's so obviously like a doll or a stand-in or a stuffed monkey that in the scene with her, you can see the sort of fake fur flying off the carcass as she's wrestling with it in the shot. It's yeah. brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, I don't know why. The ending was almost enough uh, just to save all the boredom that preceded it. Yeah. I mean, because the ending was was It was awesome. so over the top. <laughs> Jaws is a great film. Yes. One of the great things about Jaws is that- You don't see the monster that much. Oh, sure. Oh, okay. That's fine. Sorry. But once the monster explodes- and then credits, there's like 45 seconds. Yes. I think the fact that they don't spend a lot of time, they yeah. don't get back to shore, nobody hugs. Like, right. Is great. It is great. This we don't need movie, all this. Eh, I think they could have they could have trimmed once the monkey was dead on the floor. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they had the uh the traumatic flashback. But like you said, that should have been the end. Well, I did not need the uh, the happy ending. Let's discuss the ending that George Romero wanted. Yes. Uh, which on the Blu-ray release. Um, this is the ending. Prior to Dorothy, who's the mother, and Jeffrey's deaths, the boss, Harold Burbage, who's the Stephen Root character that you were talking about before, steals the remaining brain tissue serum and injects it into all of Jeffrey's remaining test monkeys. Uh, in the ending that we now have, it's Jeffrey who I believe injects all the monkeys with the remaining test serum, or the, the serum is gone the from the fridge. Gone, yeah. so, the, so the implication is that the guy stole the serum, but he has one little vial left, one bottle of beer on the wall. He takes that with him, and I guess that's what he brings to the house. So anyway- in Which is, again, why it was confusing, because it's like, what, are you going to make the monkey smarter or try yeah. to overdose it? Or maybe, I mean- Oh, no, he injects it into himself. He injects it into himself. That's what he does. So anyway, after uh, Stephen Root steals the remaining tissue serum and injects it into test monkeys, Alan regains his ability to move on his own. Burbage, who's the Stephen Root uh, administrator, is assaulted by the animal rights protesters who we briefly see throwing a tomato at, uh, at Spray Jeffrey. Spray painting. Spray painting and throwing a tomato. Just around the door. Just around the door. <laughs> Very polite. Very polite. Very polite. Uh, so he gets attacked by the animal rights protesters. Uh, Burbage insults them, returns to the lab where it's discovered that all of the remaining monkeys have completely taken control of his, Burbage's, mind. And I guess that's where it ends. Yeah. So that's sort of a cliffhanger, unresolved, classic George Romero ending that he intended. Instead, the studio made him shoot what we now have, which is the happy ending. Now, I can't say from that description that that sounds like a better ending. My favorite ending would have been he wakes up from the surgery and the alien-like monkey pops out of his chest, cut to black, credits. That I would have enjoyed. Isn't I a, think that leaves it very- I think it would have been awesome. That, would, uh, that leaves it perfectly 
amorphous. Is there a movie the that's like that where, where somebody does wake up from a trauma and, and then something happens that seems like a dream? Yeah, I don't know what movie I was talking about here, but I'm sure there is one. Is it um, Jacob's Ladder? Uh, no. You wouldn't he, know. He died. He, what do you mean? I don't know. I just, oh, just you saw, saw it that? Like a week ago. You saw Jacob's Ladder a week ago. Yeah. How, how does that even happen? I was curious. I had a free evening and I was like, I'd like to see Jacob's Ladder again. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just, you know. Those are the musings of a man who does not yet have children. <laughs> okay, because that's not something that happens to the rest of us. Talk See, about think, well, once you talk put them about to bed at huh? like midnight or whatever, then you. I had to stay up past nine o'clock last night to watch Monkey Shines. Okay, <laughs> Chris is like when we talk about like when we Chris is like oh I'll just go to the movies at eleven thirty. I'm like what? <laughs> and uh, you show up fresh faced every just day at work. Have to. Just, just have to. Just got to do. Just it, do what right? you got to do. Anyway, have we concluded everything that you have to say about the movie Monkey Shines, Chris? Or do you have any final points you'd like to make? I, I sort of forget. I did have something that I wanted to say just about the ending, but I can't imagine that it was that great because I can't. <laughs> wow, great end. <laughs> Okay, this is a new segment that we're calling Rants and Raves. This is where Chris and I share in the rant section something that's been perturbing us, particularly in the week since we last gathered to record podcasts together. And in the raves portion, as you might suspect, something that Chris or I find particularly gratifying or worthwhile to share with our eager listeners. Chris, why don't you go first? Would you like to start negatively or positively this week? Well, I'm a little bit unsure because uh, I can't tell the difference. Uh, nationwide insurance has these ads. And I was like, oh, Orlando Bloom is playing a country music star taking some schlubby suburban dad around. Then to find out later, no, that was actually Brad Paisley. Yes. And the schlubby suburban dad was Peyton Manning, who even I have heard of. Yes. Uh, Those are very funny ads. Are they? Yes. I've only seen them with the sound I think they're very funny. But they're so ubiquitous. I was like, when thinking like, oh, whoever is playing that suburban dad, like he must be doing really well as an actor. Like he's getting- He's got the dad bod. Yeah. But uh, it turns out he's a professional football player. But you didn't, hear the, you didn't hear the audio. I didn't hear the audio. No. But now I'm interested to, they're, they're funny. I'm interested they're to watch they're... it. Well, interestingly enough, Chris, my rant is also about an insurance ad on TV. Okay, so State Farm Insurance has these ads with Aaron Rodgers. Do you know who Aaron Rodgers is? Um, Don't pretend because no. you looked it up. I did look it up. I'm trying to remember. No, I know. No, I'm it's saying just... before you looked it up, did you know who he was? Oh, no. Okay. People watching, if you watch football, I don't know if they air these on other telecasts, but mm. on the National Football League, games, they run the hell out of these State Farm insurance ads, which started really promisingly. And I actually really liked the first ad. And the con- the conceit of the ad is that Aaron Rodgers, who's a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, um, is a pretty funny commercial presence in a way that Peyton Manning has been funny in commercials. And he's had a series of funny State Farm commercials over the years. This year, the construct is that Aaron Rodgers is with his State Farm agent talking about his home, life, car, motorcycle, ATV needs or whatever. And a character that's Aaron's agent, his showbiz agent comes into the frame and is irritated by the presence of the State Farm agent. So they had one or two that were really funny. And the actor who plays the agent is really good. Um, However, they now are running an ad where the conceit of the ad, the construct of the ad is that this agent character, who again, I was previously disposed to like, has taken a shit in Aaron Rodgers' house and in order to cover up the smell, lit a candle in his bathroom and the candle lit a towel on fire and now there's a smudge on the wall of the bathroom. And the character comes out of the bathroom and is embarrassed and tries understandably, to, understandably, and tries to pretend he says something. What if hypothetically someone were to have used the bathroom and lit a candle and the candle caught a towel on fire and the towel left a smudge? So here's my problem with this ad, Chris. Every time I watch this, I don't want to be reminded of somebody taking a shit when I'm watching television. I'm sorry. You know, I'm trying to, I'm just relaxing. I'm watching the game. I'm probably doing some second screen work, but I don't want to think about a guy taking a shit. And that's what I'm forced to do every time I see this ad on television. And I think it's a terrible turn for what was setting up to be a very promising run of funny commercial spots. Ah. I, I mean, it bothers I me it was, a lot more than I know what you're going to. I didn't want to piggyback on it. What I, which you then did by choosing an insurance commercial for your own rant and rave, which yeah. I thought was a little antagonistic. It was meant to be the exact opposite. It was meant oh, to really? be. Um, it was meant to meet me in yeah. in a place of familiarity. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, I think of it as stealing my thunder. Well, um, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, hmm. uh, did you think? Well, let me ask you because you you hadn't seen it until I sent yeah. you the ad. When you watched the ad, did it strike you that the guy's talking about covering up the smell of a shit that he yeah. just took? Yeah. Yeah. The, the agent uh, character in the ad is named Gabe Gabriel, and he's very funny. And the actor who plays him, 
uh, is David Hayden Jones, best known as Mr. Ketch on the CW series Supernatural. Huh. And the other guy is actually a State Farm agent. Look, the upshot is we're never going to get sponsored by State Farm Insurance. <laughs> okay? oh, oh, definitely not now. So definitely Nationwide not now. maybe, but. Well, look, I'm just saying to State Farm, when there's a good setup and I'm enjoying the first two ads and then I see this left turn, someone along the way should have said, hey, guys, is a shit joke really where, we're, I mean, again, it's just, you can do better. So I'm, I'm encouraging State Farm to do better. Chris, do you have a rave? I saw King Kong the musical and uh, I loved it. You did? Rather like, rather like monkey shines, and maybe perhaps it's in a, rather <laughs> like monkey shines. It ain't perfect, but the parts that were good were so good. Really? The biggest thing is that the set piece of the monkey is so awesome. And, you know, or it's gotten ape. a lot of bad reviews, but to my mind, a lot of that is pure snobbery. It is so incredibly theatrical. It didn't seem to me like a cynical thing in the way that yeah. certain big budget musicals can seem. It seemed like here is something that will be a spectacle to see live. And they did that. And, uh, and I think it's worth it. And a special shout out to Eric Lochteveld, who plays Lumpy. Uh, and he's fantastic. And to Johanna McKeon, who is the assistant director. So go see King Kong on so Broadway. Go King, so go see King Kong on Broadway. While it's around. And then I'll, yeah. <laughs> No, but to your point, you know what? It's a good point in the sense that I think things that are struggling in a sense, like the movies to some degree outside the big budget Marvel spectacle movies, in the same way, I think Broadway probably struggles to find relevance in a way that's saying like, hey, let's get some butts in the seats. And like, here's a gigantic ape. I mean, what the hell do you want, people? Yeah. A lot of people cite the um, the very dismissive and I, th and I thought- Snobbish. Just, snobbish yeah. New York Times review. Yeah. Uh, you know, and these are the same people that sort of will laud big budget revivals of oldie timey stuff. And this is, is trying to do something new. I do think that there is a genuine trying to make spectacle. And I do think that all showbiz. That's the job. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Um, my wife and I should go see it. Yeah. When the show is over, what do you do with this thing? On a daily basis, I know that yeah, it's, the up store is, it's up in the fly. Yeah. So it, it, it's- it Got to see it. How tall is it? Stage. It's 22 feet. Okay. So it's not, it's not massive. I mean, that's big, but it's that's big. not- but That's yeah, not yeah. like, I'm expecting it to be a hundred feet tall. Yeah, well. <laughs> I'm going to be underwhelmed. It's going to be like, your it's gonna be like spinal tap where I'm going to, yeah. I'm like. I, uh, I think somewhere between. This is, in my mind, I'm like, oh, like 120 foot King Kong. It's 22 feet <laughs> of gorilla. And you have plenty of people around for scale. Is it on a, hill, look, a mountaintop or a hill or a building? They, in the finale, it's at the top of the Empire State Building. Sure. And actually, do they do planes? Uh, spoiler for <laughs> spoiler alert. King Kong. Actually, I don't even know what the set. ending of King Kong is. Do they kill King yeah, Kong? They kill, they, they kill him. Yeah. Jesus. So they bring him here to turn him into a circus sideshow carnival act. And when well, he rebels- a Broadway show. And when and he rebels against that, the they shoot him and kill him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Talk about the indignities of the acting life. Well, the week that we're taping this was a week in which actor and magician and scholar Ricky Jay passed away. I'm a big Ricky Jay fan, have been for many, many years, uh, made a name for himself in a lot of the early Mammoth movies, which are well worth seeking out if you haven't seen them in some time. A couple of just little things for people that either remember Ricky Jay fondly or are interested to read a little bit about him. Uh, the, the, the seminal sort of magazine profile is Mark Singer's New Yorker profile, which is called Secrets of the Magus, which came out in the April 5th, 1993 issue of the New Yorker. Seek that out. It's a great profile. It contains a lot of fantastic anecdotes, uh, and quotes from a lot of people from Mamet to other magicians and authors and bon vivants who enjoyed the company of Ricky Jay. And the other uh, thing that I would request people check out is a documentary called Deceptive Practices, which was also the name of a company that Ricky Jay set up to produce effects for films. And the one that is most notably cited all the time is the Lieutenant Dan wheelchair where Gary Sinise's legs appear to have been cut off. Right. So anyway, they did stuff like that for movies. And in Molly Bernstein's documentary, it's an interesting approach to a documentary because it's not a narrative biographical documentary per se, although we do end up learning all of the relevant details about his birth and his upbringing and his leaving home at age 16. Uh, he had a very difficult relationship with his parents and never spoke to them again after the age of 16. He went out to make his way. He experienced 
first flush of fame in the 70s as a long-haired kind of rock and roll magician appearing on a ton of talk shows and opening for rock bands. Um, I love anecdotes. I love showbiz anecdotes, and it contains one of the greatest showbiz anecdotes, um, which I'm not going to tell the anecdote here. Maybe you can play a little bit of it in the final mix of the podcast, but it's about a, a a reporter for The Guardian who is profiling Ricky at the same time that he's that he's taping a documentary for the BBC and the documentary producer for the BBC is pressuring Ricky to do a spectacular effect for his documentary. And if you know anything about Ricky Jay, he kind of wants to do exactly the thing opposite what you're asking him to do in any given moment. And so the woman has a brilliant anecdote about Ricky Jay performing magic for her in an unexpected place. And it's, and it's unexpectedly moving both to her and to the viewer. I remember I burst into tears and I think that shocked him a bit actually. Because it was such a kind of uh, violent reaction. I just sobbed. And, um, and he said, I mean, he can be very gentle, Ricky, in fact. For all that he growls a lot. And I remember he said, I deceived you. It's what I do for a living. I mean, it's a moment I'll never have again. You know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, it was a kind of supreme piece of artistry that I witnessed that was done for me. I mean, that's what it felt like at the time. He had produced this extraordinary effect for me. I've always been moved by it. I think about that moment in that film almost weekly for years for some reason. I find it, uh, I don't know, there's a lot to unpack in why I find it moving. Maybe you guys might find it moving as well. Great actor, died much too young, fascinating guy, and fascinating in the way that some, you've probably heard me be fascinated by people like this. There's a damage and a kind of loneliness to Ricky Jay in both the documentary in a way that, um, is true of show people to some degree. Right. And I, you know, he got married later in his life and I'm sure had uh, closeness and warmth and togetherness, but he's very open and honest about when that wasn't the case in his life. I find that very moving and very compelling. Uh, and I just uh, thought people might be interested to learn a little bit more about him. Yeah. I think that sounds great. That's my rave. All right. Thank you everybody. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. It's always awkward to end. I don't know. I'll, we need something. I'll we need a catchphrase, it. Chris. Like, the way Stanley had Excelsior. Or like, like, or like until a, next week, we'll see like you in Bob, the balcony. Like Bob Prosky, you know, let's be, and be careful out there. You know, we need yeah, something yeah. like Hill Street Blues. We need like a, you've I, listened to another episode of Full Cast and Crew. Keep linking those devices. It's like, there's something that's right, but we haven't found it. Yeah. And we, we will know. And we are not leaving this table. I got, it's five o'clock. I got another set of batteries. It's, we're going to stay at this table until recording. we get the right thing. Keep adding to your credits. We'll, We'll continue to put your pants on for you every morning. I like that. Put your pants put on. Put your for pants you. on. That's we could end end that way. That could actually maybe just ah oh, fuck it. Ah oh, fucking hell. <laughs> oh, fuck <laughs> the it. end of it. There's no end. There's no good end. I'm telling you. You know why? We don't like to end. That's true. Because we're else, having a good time talking for you go? people out there. Well, you know, maybe this should be a listener um a listener submission. Listener Help submissions. us close with a with a phrase. Give us a, give us a better closing phrase than yeah. like you're our crew or until like, next full week. Casting crew. Until next oh. week, you know. Uh, if you have any ideas of what could be our sort of outro phrase, send them to one of the many places that you can send them. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Full Cast and Crew, or find us on Facebook.